Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. I'm your host and creator, Jimmy, and each week I make a mixtape combining my love of 80s music with memories of growing up in a San Francisco Bay Area record shop. The 1980s will forever hold a special place in my heart, and I'm excited to share the memories and the music with those who experience life during the decade, as well as anyone curious to learn what it was like to be there, but weren't. So whether you're a returning or a first-time listener, I invite you to relax and reminisce as I create a themed musical playlist comprised of artists and songs from the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s. While the 1980s were a pioneering time for many groundbreaking innovations involving music, technology, and fashion, what many who grew up during the decade most fondly associate it with are the movies. Even with my bias toward the decade, 80s cinema was such a golden period for numerous breakthroughs in movie making. From the influence of MTV blending and balancing amazing music into films, from practical special effects to the earliest uses of CGI, and to the unprecedented storytelling that was appealing and approachable for viewers, the art of filmmaking consistently evolved and developed with many groundbreaking breakthroughs during the decade. Though the 70s are created with starting the summer movie blockbuster season with the release of the film Jaws in 1975, there's no question that the 80s really shaped the concept by regularly delivering commercial and critical hits throughout the years. Upon their initial release, many films succeeded in resonating with audiences and their wallets and still remain beloved classics to this date. Films like Raiders of the Lost Ark and its sequels, Temple of Doom and The Last Crusade, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Top Gun, Back to the Future, Gremlins, Batman, Ghostbusters, E.T., Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi made so many summers at the multiplexes magical and memorable for so many audiences. The 80s also saw many actors starting out in movies who'd go on to achieve critical and commercial successes and longevity in films. This included Tom Cruise, Denzel Washington, Tom Hanks, Glenn Close, Kevin Bacon, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Whoopi Goldberg, Julia Roberts, Michelle Pfeiffer, Eddie Murphy, Bruce Willis, and Demi Moore, among many others who launched their careers during the 80s and left an impact on audiences and the films they made. Behind the camera, there were also directors really coming into their prime, like Steven Spielberg, Spike Lee, Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, the Coen brothers, and James Cameron, who all redefined what it meant to go to the movies and to watch the stories unfold on the screen. There were also movies with kids and teens as heroes, Sure, there'd been decades prior where a handful of movies were made depicting children or young people as heroes, but it was the 1980s that really discovered how to make this work. Films like The Shining, E.T., Silver Bullet, Red Dawn, The Goonies, War Games, and The Lost Boys all showed youth facing life's challenges and believably handling them in inspiring ways. The kids in 80s films looked and behaved like kids that I knew, or hung out with, or saw at school, which made them in the movies that they appeared in all the more relatable and endearing. As American culture significantly changed during the early years of the 80s, there was a power shift toward a renewed sense of optimism and progressiveness that had faded previously. 
As a result, movie studios took chances on making films that reveled in technology and creativity of the present day, rather than relying on the past for how to show and tell stories that would become classics for future generations. In addition to films that showed characters intrigued or intimidated by the limitless possibilities of technology, there were movies that handled the physical, emotional, and mental effects on people after Vietnam, films about the human spirit enduring life's little moments and overcoming overwhelming obstacles, and movies that reflected the humor, the horror, the heartbreak, and the highs of just being human. I realize that defining any decade as being the best for anything, be it its movies, music, or otherwise, is always a matter of generational bias. And though the 1980s weren't perfect, they did capture a period in time that I'll fondly and favorably always remember shaping and influencing the boy that I was then and the man that I grew to be. Last week, I shared my own subjective perspective on artists who contributed memorable songs to movies released during 1986 and 1987 in my 24th episode titled Movie Soundtracks 86 to 87. That episode, along with many others, are currently available to download and listen to on a variety of platforms, including Apple Music, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, with new episodes available every Wednesday. You can also reach out to me by email at jeepmusicpodcast at gmail.com. My father used to say that practice makes progress, and I want to acknowledge the generous support and positive encouragement I continue to receive from listeners. I'd like to give a humble and heartfelt thanks for your support in the progression of this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a moment to hit follow, subscribe, and like. I'd also greatly appreciate any five-star ratings and or reviews, and please tell your friends, family, and anyone in between about Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist. Again, thank you for listening, sharing, and supporting as I make mixtapes, talk about 80s music, and the memories associated with them for everyone to enjoy. Our theme for November has been movie soundtracks of the 1980s, Each playlist of the month included songs released in sequential order by year during the decade. We end this week with movie soundtracks of 1988 through 1989. Of all the decades, the 1980s is unquestionably at the forefront of when the entertainment industry began to heavily explore potential benefits of cross-promoting their products, specifically films and music. It was the beginning of the visual age, and image and imagery were heavily marketed in everything to everyone. MTV played music videos that were essentially three to four minute movie trailers with scenes and frames from the films designed to attract audiences into theaters and also to buy the records. The 1980s were such a revolutionary time for innovations in music production and sound engineering, which greatly impacted and influenced how artists created music. The rise of electronic synths also spawned new genres like techno, house, and new wave, while R&B, hip-hop, and rap became more commonplace on the radio, on the record shelves, and on the charts. Building from the successes seen during the previous decades, 80s films began to incorporate songs showcasing these musical progressions onto their soundtracks and into their films. More than ever before, pop songs were utilized within films as more than just background noise or filler sounds for frames. They were used front and center to help a film succeed by driving its story, supporting the scenes, and developing characters. 
As a result, many 80s songs are forever linked to the movie that they were first featured in. Our playlist includes songs from artists featured in films during the 1980s. The songs serve as timestamps to remind us about moments in our lives we saw reflected on a screen and what we enjoyed, loved, or identified with most about the movies we saw. While some movies remain strong within pop culture long after their release and others fade from popularity, their songs can continue enduring and entertaining with every new generation that discovers them. So let's catch the Staten Island Ferry to Manhattan and climb the corporate ladder. Let's follow a caped crusader as he protects his city from crime. And let's hop into a phone booth and travel through time to encounter many historical figures as we make a mixtape. I've unwrapped another 60-minute blank Maxell audio cassette tape and placed it into the left side of the dual cassette tape player of my stereo system. I press down the pause, play, and record buttons, and I'm ready to make another memorable mixtape filled with extraordinary 80s music. Out of respect for the copyright and creative process by the artists involved in all songs mentioned in the podcast, no music clips will be included. Instead, I'll use my commentary about the songs and encourage the listener to support music sites by authentically acquiring access to them. I'm ready to start site A of the mixtape, which includes selections released during the year 1988 and have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in June of 1988 and peaked at number 54 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Cindy Lauper, and the song is Hole in My Heart, All the Way to China. During the 1980s, there were plenty of movies released that were considered financial flops when they failed to make any major profits at the box office, including the money initially used to finance them. Despite using $44 million to make the 1980 epic Western film Heaven's Gate starring Jeff Bridges and Christopher Walken, it only made $3.5 million upon its release. Ishtar, a 1987 adventure comedy film starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, made $14 million while having a budget almost four times the amount. While both films became notoriously known for being huge critical and financial failures of the decade, other films proved that they could make a return on their investment and still see profits. 1986's film Platoon, starring Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe, was made on a budget of $6 million and saw a profit of $138 million, while Big, starring Tom Hanks, was made for $18 million and returned over $151 million in sales in 1988. Though the 80s were groundbreaking for attempting original and unseen concepts involving filmmaking and storytelling, not everything always worked. In 1982, the film E.T. was made on a budget of $11 million and managed to make $359 million during its initial theatrical run. This was unprecedented for its time. While audiences were willing to suspend disbelief during the film at the heartwarming story of Boy Meets Alien, they weren't as receptive to the many knockoff versions that came afterward in the wake of its success. Most notably, the 1988 film Mac and Me, with its product placement and plagiarized plot, made less than half of its $13 million budget when it was released. In 1981, Harrison Ford debuted as Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which was made for $20 million and earned $225 million, causing many movie studios and producers to attempt to copy its success. 
This worked for some films like 1984's Romancing the Stone, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, which successfully balanced action and adventure with romance and comedy and made $115 million on a budget of $10 million. However, other films like 1986's Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold, 1983's High Road to China, and 1988's Vibes all failed to capitalize on the success established at the start of the decade by Indiana Jones. I remember looking forward to seeing the movie Vibes, mostly because of who was in it rather than its plot. The cast included Jeff Goldblum, whom I recognized from the movie The Fly, Peter Falk from the 1970s detective show Columbo, which at the time was airing in reruns on Channel 20, and Cindy Lauper, one of the biggest pop music stars in the world, who was making her motion picture debut. After releasing two successful albums, Cindy Lauper decided to delve into her first major acting role on the big screen in the film Vibes. I was concerned that the film might be bad when I checked the newspaper on its opening weekend and saw that it would be playing at Cinema 5. Nothing good ever played at Cinema 5. But because I wanted to see Cindy Lauper, I decided it would be worth it, and I dragged my friend Tina. Including us, there were six people in the theater at the Saturday evening showing, and two of them actually left midway through the movie. I kept wondering, are they going to get popcorn? And then I realized we were at Cinema 5, and nobody was getting popcorn at Cinema 5. I then realized they weren't actually coming back. The film Vibes is about two psychics, played by Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper, who were conned by Peter Falk into going to Ecuador to search for his missing child, but in actuality it's to use their talents or gifts or skills or their unique capabilities to find a lost city of gold. There's also bad guys in pursuit, and the film has a lot of Jeff Goldblum mugging by making bug-eyed facial expressions and Cindy Lauper just being kooky and acting like, well, kooky Cindy Lauper from the 80s while wearing outlandish 80s fashions and either mumbling or <laughs> screeching her lines. The film also just doesn't have enough for anyone to do, and it's mostly the characters just walking around poorly designed sets and just reciting poorly written dialogue. It just made me wish that Cindy Lauper had been paired with Harrison Ford instead in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I'm thinking I would have found her more appealing as Willie and less annoying if she had played the part instead of Kate Capshaw. The best part of Vibes, though, was the end, and not just because the movie was over, but because there was a new Cyndi Lauper song that was played during the credits. Hole in My Heart, All the Way to China is an upbeat and extremely catchy song that has nothing to do with the movie or its plot, but it showcased Cyndi Lauper's incredible singing range and infectious personality way better than the two-hour film that I just sat through. The song is sung from the perspective of a woman suffering from an emptiness inside due to the lack of affection in her relationship. She's using extreme measures to communicate to the other person her need for attention in the verses. I'm on a planet without a plan. It's oh so lonely. I need to see you to get out of here. There's something deadly in this atmosphere. I'm in a desert without a drink of your sweet water. You're my oasis in the burning sand. I'm out of danger when you touch my hand. I remember I had the 45 single of the song, and I played it a lot because of how great her voice sounded against the pop's rockabilly-type music production in the song. She really gets to belt the chorus at the end, and her vocals soar, hitting high notes against the song's melody. 
Unfortunately, other than my turntable, the song didn't receive any major airplay, and the music video wasn't shown much, either due to MTV moving away from music videos at the time, or other music channels just not promoting it. As a result, Hole in My Heart became one of Cyndi Lauper's most forgotten songs, and signaled that her popularity was waning with the public during the latter part of the decade. The film was also unsuccessful, as it made $1.8 million on an $18 million budget. After the film and the song's lackluster performances, Cyndi Lauper would be okay, though. She'd go on to record my favorite of her albums called A Night to Remember, which is filled with amazing songwriting and songs that really demonstrate her artistry and her telling stories and creating characters that are way better than any film could ever try to do for her. As Hole in My Heart All the Way to China by Cyndi Lauper fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 2 was released in June of 1988 and peaked at number 8 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Kenny Loggins, and the song is Nobody's Fool. During the latter part of the 80s, many film sequels flooded movie theaters, all attempting to capitalize on the success of the originals that were made earlier in the decade. While Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade were profitable hits, films like Arthur 2, On the Rocks, and Cocoon, The Return, were unnecessary film sequels that struggled to make money, as well as any kind of impact on audiences. In 1988, eight years after the successful comedy Caddyshack was made, its financial and critically disappointing sequel, Caddyshack 2, was released. The film was instantly panned by critics and audiences who called it out as a lazy attempt to cash in on a sequel to what was originally conceived as a standalone film. The plot of Part 2 doesn't try anything new, and instead attempts to simply retell the original story by adding some slight tweaks as well as removing the charm, humor, or caliber of comedic performances that made the first movie so memorable. Actors Jackie Mason, Dan Aykroyd, and Robert Stack try their best. Well, maybe not their best, but they are trying something, as they impersonate versions of characters that were used in the original. This only succeeds in demonstrating at how much better Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Murray, and Ted Knight were at delivering the lines and the shtick the first time around. Even Chevy Chase in a glorified cameo and the beloved gopher returning to terrorize the country club's golf course fail to make the film entertaining enough to watch or sit through. One great decision that the movie producers made was bringing back the king of 1980s movie soundtracks, Kenny Loggins, to perform the film's theme song, Nobody's Fool. Honestly, I was surprised that they didn't just have him sing an updated version of I'm Alright from the first film, since they were just essentially recreating the original and calling it a sequel. It's too bad, though, that Nobody's Fool is associated with such a stinker of a film, because it really is a great song. Sometimes it gets overshadowed by the other songs that Kenny Loggins contributed throughout the 80s to movies. But like his other hugely successful songs that were recorded for movie soundtracks in the decade, it has an uplifting and empowering chorus that's designed to motivate and inspire listeners, much like Footloose and Danger Zone had before. The verses try to tie in the nostalgia of the original film Caddyshack with lyrics like, I know you think I'm no match for you, baby. You like making it rough on me, don't, don't you? My, my, back to the shack. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yeah. Nothing suits me better than that. What is he even saying? 
There is an earnestness and a grit to his vocals, though, that put power behind the verses, but it's when he soars during the song's chorus that is definitely the best part of the song. I'm going all the way. Sooner or later, gotta love somebody. Don't care how long it takes. Like a shot to the heart, I've got news for you. I may not look so smart, but I'm nobody's fool. Throughout the decade, Kenny Loggins wrote and recorded numerous songs associated with scenes from films like Footloose, Caddyshack, and Top Gun. In addition, he also released several studio albums and appeared on projects for other artists and musicians, including duetting with Steve Perry on the song Don't Fight It and USA for Africa with We Are the World. While he's undoubtedly most remembered for his soundtrack singles of the 80s more than any of his other work prior to and after the decade, Kenny Loggins' artistry and legacy as a singer and songwriter are both beautiful and bountiful. Though Nobody's Fool wasn't his last song to appear on a film soundtrack, it was his final song to peak in the top 10, as well as his last to appear in the top 40 on the singles chart. I'm sure it isn't the first song from a soundtrack that people think of when they hear Kenny Loggins' name. For me, it's usually Footloose. But it's definitely worth listening to. And again, just try not singing along at full volume to that chorus of... I'm going all the way, sooner or later gotta love somebody, don't care how long it takes, you can turn up the heat, but I'm playing it cool, I know it's hard to believe, I ain't nobody's fool. As Nobody's Fool by Kenny Loggins fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 3 was released in October of 1988 and peaked at number 9 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Annie Lennox and Al Green, and the song is Put a Little Love in Your Heart. While Jackie DeShannon's name may not have been familiar to many people growing up in the 1980s, the songs she sang and wrote prior to the decade certainly were. I remember seeing Kim Carnes performing the song Betty Davis Eyes on American Bandstand and how afterwards she talked with host Dick Clark about the song actually being a cover. Wait, what? Intrigued by this, I went to the most reliable musical source I knew, my father, and recall my jaw dropping to the ground when he played the original version of Betty Davis Eyes, written and sung by Jackie DeShannon almost a decade earlier. I was absolutely stunned as I repeatedly looked from the record playing on the turntable over at my father who was smiling and nodding along with the song. There was no question that it was definitely the same lyrics being sung, but two widely different musical interpretations of the song. In the original, Jackie DeShannon sings the lyrics in an upbeat, almost bluesy tone over a musical arrangement that sounds like a jazzy callback to the Roaring Twenties. This makes it sound like she's singing admirably about the woman of the song, unlike Kim Carnes' version, where she's cold and foreboding. Hers was the one that I had heard played on the radio, and at the roller rink, in the record shop, and everywhere else in 1981, it had a sound to it that was just alluring and nostalgic, even before I really knew what those words meant. The song also featured an intoxicatingly hypnotic synth riff surrounding Kim Carnes' raspy vocals that propelled the song forward. 
I remember my father replayed the original song while explaining to me how Jackie DeShannon was a successful singer-songwriter during the 60s and 70s, and how she was known for singing with such grit and conviction in her voice, which separated her from other popular female singers at the time. We then listened to some of her other songs, and I could hear the rawness and the grit in her vocals on When You Walk in the Room and the song Needles and Pins, both of which I instantly enjoyed, along with her beautiful clarity and richness in voice during What the World Needs Now and Put a Little Love in Your Heart. As the 80s progressed, I got, up, I got caught up in more current music of the time, and I sort of forgot about Jackie DeShannon. But I quickly recalled hearing her when I first heard Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, along with Stevie Nicks, singing a cover of Needles and Pins, as well as Paul Carrick singing a cover of When You Walk in the Room, which are both excellently done. I remember taking my father to see the holiday film Scrooged at the festival theater during my Christmas break from school in 1988. In the movie, Bill Murray plays a selfishly cynical and pessimistic television executive whose company's broadcasting a live production of A Christmas Carol on Christmas Eve. Soon, fiction begins to mirror reality as he's visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future in an attempt to see the consequences of his actions towards the people in his personal and professional life. The film unsurprisingly sees Bill Murray's character, much like Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, become a kinder and more loving person toward everyone. This is then followed by a montage of scenes with various characters in the movie singing the song Put a Little Love in Your Heart. The credits begin to roll and Bill Murray then breaks the fourth wall of the film and starts talking directly to the camera, encouraging those watching the movie in the theater to sing along. And I remember looking over at my father, who, like many others in the audience, were actually singing along. Moments later, the cover version by Annie Lennox and legendary soul singer Al Green started to play. And we stayed in the theater listening to it and just talking about how he introduced me to Jackie DeShannon's music. If you could have seen the expression on your face back when I played Betty Davis Eyes for you, he said while laughing. I think it was one of the only times that I ever saw you at a loss for words. It was obvious that you hated it but I had a feeling that you'd enjoy her other songs, which I believe you did. I nodded and said, I did like her other songs, and I didn't hate her version of Betty Davis' Eyes. I just didn't really like it, which made us both laugh. Put a little love in your heart encourages people to express support and positivity toward one another. It's an optimistic sentiment that was valid when the song was originally written over 50 years ago, and even more so today. The song opens with the line, Think of your fellow man. Lend him a helping hand. Put a little love in your heart. You see, it's getting late. Oh, please don't hesitate. Put a little love in your heart. I really enjoy how well Annie Lennox and Al Green sound together at delivering the song's message about how it all begins within us. Take a good look around, and if you're looking down, put a little love in your heart. I hope when you decide, kindness will be your guide. Put a little love in your heart. Such a simple sentiment. The song's just suggesting allowing love to shine from within our hearts rather than allowing something darker and potentially more harmful from taking hold of it. Sometimes people can get more caught up in pointing out the differences between one another rather than uniting to make the difference for themselves and for others. If we wait for others to open their eyes, their minds, and their hearts, all we are is waiting. And there are those out there that can definitely benefit from human compassion kindness, and love.
As Put a Little Love in Your Heart by Annie Lennox and Al Green fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 4 was released in November of 1988 and peaked at number 1 for two weeks on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Phil Collins, and the song is Two Hearts. When I think of the musical giants of the 1980s that really dominated pop culture and the music scene, Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Prince always come to mind. While I was growing up, these artists had a constant presence throughout the decade due to their many hit singles, albums, music videos, live concerts, and larger-than-life images and personalities. They were everywhere and extremely influential in how people dressed, danced, and behaved. However, as impactful and identifiable with the 80s as the three of them were, there were also many other solo singers who made significant strides on the radio, in music videos, in pop culture, and with audiences. There was Sting, Whitney Houston, George Michael, Bruce Springsteen, Lionel Richie, and Cyndi Lauper, among many others that really hit their stride and achieved various successes during the decade. Though he'd started his musical career well before the 1980s, Phil Collins unquestionably saw his greatest successes during the decade. The amount of work he contributed as a singer, songwriter, performer, and musician in the 80s alone is just astounding and deserves to be recognized for how innovative and imaginative it was. As a solo artist, he achieved seven number one songs on the Hot 100 singles chart, including Against All Odds, Susudio, and One More Night, while also seeing success as lead singer and drummer for rock band Genesis. In addition, he collaborated with Philip Bailey on the song Easy Lover and with Marilyn Martin on Separate Lives, as well as took part in the production of Band-Aid with the song Do They Know It's Christmas. He also played drums and provided background vocals on various songs for musicians like Tina Turner, Peter Gabriel, and Eric Clapton. Somehow, during all of his creative endeavors, Phil Collins also found the time to appear in the 1988 feature film Buster, which was based on events surrounding the Great Train Robbery that occurred during the early 60s in the United Kingdom. Though the film failed to find an audience in America, two of his songs from the soundtrack were both big hits, peaking at number one on the singles chart. The first was a cover of the upbeat Mindbender song, A Groovy Kind of Love, which Phil Collins slowed down and sang as a ballad. The follow-up single was the infectiously catchy, up-tempo song, Two Hearts, which successfully emulated the sound of 60s Motown. The song's an ode to love's endurance between two people, regardless of the distance or the circumstances that might interfere or challenge them. My favorite part of the song is the bridge, where the music shifts from a jaunty shuffle of keyboards, guitars, and drums into syncopated kicks and multiple modulations that send it soaring as Phil Collins enthusiastically sings and harmonizes with himself through to the end. I just love hearing him ad-lib while he sings, Two hearts believing in just one mind beating together till the end of time. You know we're two hearts believing in just one one mind together forever till the end of time he also does that thing that i love in a song where the singer stretches out specific lyrics or words to really make them resonate with the listener he does this at the end of against all odds when he sings the lyric 
and you coming back to me is against all odds which really conveys how broken and just hopeless he's become at the end of the song I just love how he stretches out those words against all odds like you hear each syllable each inflection and the just the hurt in his voice as he sings them he does this again in two hearts when he stretches out the lyrics beating together then he goes till the end of time just the last three words like just stretch out and they really tell you that this is forever this is a person who's in love with the other and you're together forever just as the song is saying it always makes me smile and just sing along with the song it's just so enthusiastic from the bridge all the way through the end of it it's hard to to not snap my fingers or tap my toes or just move along with it it's such a great song as the 80s drew to a close and the 1990s began phil collins again held the number one spot on the chart with the song another day in paradise I remember watching a TV special around this time. It was called Seriously Phil Collins, and it was designed to promote his new album. And I remember it involved like strange sketches with like celebrities who were, you know, big celebrities at the time were just starting out. Like it had Gilbert Gottfried, who I knew from USA Up All Night, um, where he would host weekend movies. And it had uh, Vanessa Williams, um, like before Save the Best for Last came out and like before she really started to take off as a performer. Um, and it had celebrity cameos from people that were, you know, really big at the time, like John Travolta and Don Johnson and Bruce Willis. But the best part was hearing Phil Collins, like doing different takes on his hit songs throughout the program. Like he did a country version of the song Separate Lives as a duet with uh, Barbara Mandrell. <laughs> he did a rap version of uh, Don't Lose My Number. And he did In the Air Tonight, which was backed with a full orchestra, which definitely um, made the song sound different. And it sort of gave a different interpretation to it. But nothing will beat the original. The special also had him singing two hearts while he was wrestling one of my favorites, the Ultimate Warrior from the WWF as it was known back then. I guess after Cindy Lauper ended her rock and wrestling connection, he saw the opening, but I don't know that it necessarily needed to be filled. For an artist who never really influenced how we dressed or danced or behaved, Phil Collins still made an incredible mark on the decade, as well as the music world, and in addition, the soundtrack of my youth. As Two Hearts by Phil Collins fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the final track for side A. Track 5 was released in December of 1988 and peaked at number 6 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Ann Wilson and Robin Zander, and the song is Surrender to Me. In 1985, People Magazine published the first of what would become an annual issue declaring a celebrity the sexiest man alive. I discovered this when my friend Jessica ran over to me with a copy while I was browsing through endless racks of magazines, including Star Hits, Rolling Stone, and Details Magazine at Walden Books in the Southland Mall. As I stood staring at the cover declaring Mel Gibson the sexiest man alive, Jessica exclaimed loudly how hot he was. I then replied, that's the sexiest man alive? Nah. I then opened Star Hits and flipped through the pages and pointed out how Roger Taylor from Duran Duran, Paul Young, 
Morton from AHA, and of course, Billy Idol were, to my knowledge, all still living and way sexier than Mel Gibson. I remember my parents had a subscription to People, and I saw the various issues of who the magazine claimed was the sexiest man alive over the next few years. In the remainder of the 80s, they declared Mark Harmon, no. Harry Hamlin, what? JFK Jr., no. And actress Sean Connery, stop. As the sexiest men alive, and I was outraged at how they didn't acknowledge Bruce Springsteen, Corey Hart, or Billy Idol, who were perfect choices. My father, having heard enough from me, finally spelled it out by saying, it's all business and that these actors or famous people have something to promote, like a TV show or a movie that's coming out. So of course the magazine wants to sell copies to make money and boom, that's why you get Sean Connery on the cover as opposed to say, Corey Hart. He then explained how it's all calculated, like when celebrities went on morning talk shows or Johnny Carson, only when they were promoting something like a movie or an album and that they want the audience to buy it and the show wants to make ratings. I had to admit that it didn't make sense as future issues of people conveniently declared Tom Cruise, Johnny Depp, and Brad Pitt, the sexiest men alive, coincidentally just as their new films were about to be released. Sigh. So much for youthful naivete. I remember a few years later sneaking into the R-rated film Tequila Sunrise with Jessica at the Festival Theater after we bought tickets for The Naked Gun. Tequila Sunrise was a romantic crime drama that centered around the relationships between Mel Gibson's reformed drug dealer, Kurt Russell's charming cop, and a sophisticated restaurateur played by Michelle Pfeiffer. While we agreed that Michelle Pfeiffer was absolutely gorgeous and illuminated the screen with her presence, we disagreed on the men. Naturally, Jessica found Mel Gibson attractive, whereas if I had been a cartoon character while watching Kurt Russell in that movie, my eyes would have been replaced with giant red hearts bulging out of them and steam emanating from my ears. There was something about the fit of his suits, his slicked back hair, and his dimples when he smiled that reaffirmed just why I'd found him so attractive in his movies like The Thing, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, and especially Overboard. There's a scene in Overboard where he's showing Goldie Hawn's character the motorized shoe rack that he built on her boat, and he leans back and puts his hands into his sleeveless muscle t-shirt and then clasps them together, exposing his chest that stuck with me long after the film was over. From Tequila Sunrise, the song Surrender to Me was featured on the soundtrack, and it was sung by two incredible voices from successful rock bands. The female vocal was provided by Ann Wilson of Heart, while Robin Zander of Cheap Trick sung the male vocal. The ballad is sung from the perspective of a couple struggling against separation and the desire to stay together, both of which present complications similar to the characters in the movie. The song opens with Robin Zander asking, is it that we've been together much too long? The answer may not be in black and white. This is then followed by Ann Wilson replying, we're always trying to prove who's right or wrong, and now we're giving up without a fight. They then come together on the verses, but I know when you're gone, I'll wish I'd held on. Before the chorus that kicks in of the two of them together harmonizing on the lyrics, so baby surrender to me, there'll be no holding back now, so baby surrender to me tonight. During the song's choruses, Ann Wilson softly sings the lyric, Surrender, at first, before eventually using her powerful vocals later in the song to really convey her longing as she sings the word. She really sings it out. She goes, 
surrender. I'm no Ann Wilson, but it's extremely effective at hearing it. I can feel the passion and the heartache in their vocals as they harmonize to the lyrics on the line. There'll be no holding back now. It's impossible not to hear the ache or the passion in their voices as they sing about their longing for one another and that it's just not enough to keep them together. Surrender to Me is a sensual ballad that really showcases Ann Wilson and Robin Zander being vulnerable toward one another as they weave in and out of the lyrics. I don't want our love to cause you so much pain. If this is how it's going to be, I'll walk away. Oh, neither one of us should ever say goodbye. Let's forget about the past and who's to blame. Because when this is all gone, we'll wish we'd held on. The song's excellent at showing the struggle between being in love with someone and being consumed by the passion that emanates from the two of you. Being a teenager when the song came out, I was definitely moved by the yearning in their voices and how sad the song sounded despite being so rich with emotion. It showed me that no matter how hard you try to make a relationship strong, sometimes circumstances or challenges get in the way and can prevent it from working out. As Surrender to Me by Ann Wilson and Robin Zander ends, it will also end side A. I'll press stop on the cassette player and eject the tape. To recap, we open side A with Hole in My Heart, All the Way to China by Cindy Lauper, followed by Nobody's Fool by Kenny Loggins. Next was Put a Little Love in Your Heart by Annie Lennox and Al Green. Then Two Hearts by Phil Collins. And we ended side A with Surrender to Me by Ann Wilson and Robin Zander. We're halfway there. Now I'll flip the tape over and press the pause, play, and record buttons and prepare to start side B, which will include selections released during the year 1989. I have the first track ready, so I'll unpause the cassette and begin our playlist with the first song. Track 1 was released in January of 1989 and peaked at number 49 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Carly Simon, and the song is Let the River Run. For 50 years, singer-songwriter Carly Simon has used her incredible talent to create songs filled with vulnerable honesty and unapologetic lyrics that have made her relatable to so many listeners. She's an impassioned singer, unafraid to display raw emotion in her songs that narrate areas of life, love, and loss that everyone experiences. It's impossible not to hear the genuine sincerity in her voice as she sings song lyrics that she's undoubtedly lived and lived through. In some of the lowest moments of my life, her music has been there to lift me up or to remind me to remain optimistic, as well as to encourage me to dream, to dare, and to do. Songs like Haven't Got Time for the Pain, The Stuff That Dreams Are Made Of, Coming Around Again, and Touched by the Sun, among others, have at some point provided comfort, motivation, or guidance to me at times when I didn't know all the answers and I didn't even know my own strength. I was 13 years old when I got the album Coming Around Again, and it immediately resonated with me, and I remember playing it repeatedly, just listening to, and learning from, and loving all the songs. I'd lie on my bed and just listen to the lyrics of songs supported by masterful musical productions that were effective at affecting all of my senses. I was impressed with how earnest and soothing she was on songs like All I Want Is You and You Have to Hurt and how cautiously confident she sounded on songs like Do the Walls Come Down and Give Me All Night. 
A few months after getting her album, Carly Simon performed live at an intimate concert on Martha's Vineyard that was broadcast on HBO. I remember drinking New York seltzers and eating popcorn while sitting in the living room watching it with both of my parents. She sang many of her well-known hits like You're So Vain, Anticipation, and Nobody Does It Better, and in addition sang several songs from the album Coming Around Again, including the title track, where she was joined by young children singing the rhyme Itsy Bitsy Spider as she then blended the two songs together. I'm not sure where it came from, but something about seeing the wind on the water and watching her move about the stage and seeing the children rock back and forth together and just hearing this fearless freedom in the vocals literally moved me to tears. I was affected at how heartfelt the performance was and just watching her emote the lyrics backed by a childhood rhyme that reminded me that it's possible to improve your situation at any point, any time. The end of a relationship or an experience or an opportunity is not the end of you. I didn't know it then, but later in life, I'd look back to this song for strength and for resilience to get back up after the world had knocked me down. In 1988, Carly Simon was asked to compose the score and write music for the romantic comedy Working Girl. The film tells the story of an ambitious secretary, played by Melanie Griffith, who steps into a position of power in the office after her boss, played by Sigourney Weaver, is sidelined after recovering from a broken leg. Oh, and there's also a romantic subplot involving Harrison Ford that I feel doesn't really need to be in the film. I mean, Harrison Ford is great as Han Solo and Indiana Jones, but... I've never really bought him as a romantic lead in the movie. Maybe I'm projecting or perceiving it, but he always looks like he's inconvenienced in some way when he's trying to act as a romantic love interest. I know I can't be the only one that sees it, with him acting reluctant or gruff or grumpy or just put upon when he's cast in a romantic film, right? The film opens with amazing cinematography as the camera soars above the Hudson River showcasing the Statue of Liberty, the Twin Towers, and Manhattan's well-known city skyline. The bombastic anthem Let the River Run by Carly Simon plays throughout. The camera then pans across the Hudson and into the Staten Island Ferry where we meet Melanie Griffith and Joan Cusack's characters navigating the work commute into the city along with images of businessmen wearing suits and trench coats and women in unflattering suit skirt sets and sneakers carrying briefcases with their high heels inside of them. The song opens with the lyrics, we're coming to the edge, running on the water, coming through the fog, your sons and daughters, let the river run, let all the dreamers wake the nation, come the new Jerusalem. Throughout history, New York has been seen as a place that represents people of different races, genders, cultures, sexual identities, and backgrounds, while making their way from all over the globe to manifest their desires and dreams into realities. The song's verses encourage people to make the most of opportunity given to them, while also claiming and controlling their own narrative. We the great and small stand on a star and blaze a trail of desire through the darkening dawn. Prior to making any kind of life change, it's natural to feel nervousness or uncertainty and to be tempted to let self-doubts affect going through with things. I've heard so many people say how much they hate their jobs or how their relationship isn't working or how they feel limited or stuck in life, yet they don't make any effort or attempt to change things. Now, I've also witnessed many people who've said those same things and then became unstuck, became empowered, and found fulfillment starting with the skin that they're in. The lyrics, it's asking for the taking, trembling, shaking, 
Oh, my heart is aching, acknowledge the apprehension while the song addresses investing in yourself and the impact you can make. By the end of the film, Melanie Griffith's character is recognized and rewarded for her perseverance and business acumen without ever compromising her integrity, spirit, or her focus. The film ends with a moment of self-actualization where she mistakenly thinks she's the secretary, only to realize she's actually earned a position of authority, complete with her own office and a view of the river and the cityscapes all around. She doesn't have to pretend to be the boss or the person in charge anymore. She's actually proven to anyone who doubted or discouraged her before that she was able to achieve it on her own. As Let the River Run by Carly Simon fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track two was released in February of 1989 and peaked at number one for one week on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Bette Midler, and the song is Wind Beneath My Wings. While out doing some last-minute Christmas shopping at the mall for our mom, my older sister Sherry and I decided to take a break for a couple hours from the stores and the crowds and go see a movie at the Southland Theater. We chose to watch the film Beaches because we both love Bette Midler and how incredibly funny she was in the film's Ruthless People, Big Business, and Outrageous Fortune. The film Beaches had just come out and we really hadn't heard a lot about it and figured it must be a comedy like her other films. About five minutes into the film, though, when Bette Midler's character is performing and receives unexpected news, she drops everything and runs off the stage. This was when my sister and I realized that this film was going to be more heartbreaking than hilarious. Beaches chronicles the 30-year friendship between Midler's sassy and energetic entertainer Cece and Barbara Hershey's more reserved single mother and attorney Hillary. While there are plenty of laughs along the way, the film ends with Hillary passing away from a heart condition and Cece bringing up her young daughter to live with her. When the film came out, there weren't too many movies that showed the complexities of a friendship between two strong-willed, independent, and ambitious women. It also involved how people we choose as friends often become as close as our own family. I was already in tears before the song Wind Beneath My Wings even began to play in the film. The scene where Cece is at Hillary's hospital bedside really got to me because of how expressive and emotive Bette Midler's face was as the reality of their limited time left together really began to settle in. I remember my eyes were watering and my nose began to run and my sister pulled my head toward her shoulder and just let it happen. We stayed like that through the rest of the movie and I thought I was okay until after Bette Midler sang the slowed down version of The Glory of Love and then she tells Hillary's daughter how she met her mother when they were kids, just as the scene flashes with the girls taking their pictures in the photo booth when they first met at the beginning of the movie. As the credits rolled and I was a mess, the instrumental version of Wind Beneath My Wings played, and I sat there with my older sister, just sobbing, and my sister finally said to me, I've needed to use the restroom for the last 15 minutes, and I wasn't sure if I could leave you alone or not. <laughs> This made me burst out laughing, which then made her laugh, and we got up and left the theater. Later to lighten the mood, we went back to the mall and decided to get my mom a bottle of Chanel No. 5 perfume from Macy's. Before we headed out of the mall, though, as a joke, we had our picture taken on Santa Claus's lap. 
to give to our mother, knowing that she would be horrified and mortified, but hopefully the sentiment would be appreciated behind it. I immediately forgot about taking the picture and didn't see it again until nearly 25 years later when I found myself helping Anthony clean and sort out Sherry's belongings after she passed away in 2012. In a box in their attic, we found a bunch of her old high school yearbooks, concert ticket stubs, and some old photos and frames. Among those photos was the picture my sister and I had taken with the mall Santa, still in its original 5x7 frame that they gave us. I thought we gave this to our mom for Christmas, I said, and Anthony advised me that no, Sherry had kept it for herself because it reminded her how much she loved being my sister. I couldn't believe it. It was a time capsule. Suddenly I was this kid again, and I wanted to lean my head against my sister, but I could lean into the memories at least. I started to share the details about how the picture was taken and all about the day that we saw beaches and my eyes began to well up as I thought of how fortunate I was to have grown up with such an incredibly amazing, wonderful and loving sister. As Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 3 was released in February of 1989 and peaked at number 6 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artists are Cher and Peter Cetera, and the song is After All. I remember sitting in the food court at the Southland Mall with my friend Denise when I first heard the ballad After All by Cher and Peter Cetera. We talked about how well their voices sounded, especially during the chorus when they harmonized with one another. The song was written for the romantic comedy Chances Are, which has a plot that could have only happened in the 1980s. In the film, a pregnant woman, played by Sybil Shepard, loses her husband to a car accident. He's then reincarnated 20 years later in present time as Robert Downey Jr., who then starts dating their now all-grown-up daughter, unbeknownst to him. The song is sung from the perspective of two people who've tried and failed as lovers, but with time manage to return to one another and rekindle their bond built from love. The song opens with Peter Cetera singing, Well, here we are again. I guess it must be fate. We've tried it on our own, but deep inside we've known we'd be back to set things straight. Then Cher comes in with a vulnerability on the lyric. I still remember when your kiss was so brand new. Every memory repeats. Every step I take retreats. Every journey always brings me back to you. After all, it's a mature ballad sung beautifully between two artists that convey an appreciation for lost love and the second chance that fate has presented them to be together. My favorite part in the song is the chorus, where Cher reaffirms how they're two angels who've been rescued from the fall. I love hearing the inflection in her voice on the word rescued because it just drives home the understanding of how fortunate we are to find someone to love that will love us in return. The chorus goes, After all the stops and starts, we keep coming back to these two hearts, two angels who've been rescued from the fall. That's my share impression. After all that we've been through, it all comes down to me and you. I guess it's meant to be forever you and me after all 
Okay, keep your thoughts on me singing on pause for just a moment on the side as I tell you the story. When I was a junior in high school, I attended a spring talent show in the school auditorium that was held on a Friday evening for whatever the reason. It was strange to be at the school after dark, and it reminded me of every early 80s high school slasher that I'd seen at least 45 times before. I was there with my friends David and Denise, and a few others to support our friend Marisol, who had entered the talent show. Ever the freestyle fan, she, along with Michelle and Jessica, choreographed a dance routine to the incredibly addictive anthem, Come Into My Arms, by Judy Torres. I think we paid like $2 or something each to get in, with David commenting on how ridiculous it was to have to pay money to come to school at night, while I continued to look for the killer lurking somewhere in the shadows. Once we grabbed seats near the front of the auditorium, I, look, I looked through the program that we'd been given and scanned it for Marisol, Michelle, and Jessica's names, seeing that they were performing second to last. They were also calling themselves Sweeter Sensation, <laughs> which made me laugh because... At the time, the girl group Sweet Sensation was really popular with their dance songs Hooked on You and Sincerely Yours. And there was also no way that the girls that I knew very well were any sweeter than the ones in the musical group. The program said that they'd be doing a freestyle dance, and I counted at least about 10 other acts that we'd have to get through before them. First up was a band called Havarti, like the cheese, that opened the show. And they performed R.E.M.'s It's the End of the World as We Know It, which was a decent attempt, but the lead singer was no Michael Stipe, and he was out of breath several times during the song, and he sort of just stumbled along and slurred a few of the words and then just resulted to shouting them out. There was also a couple of girls who each sang Whitney Houston ballads, with one doing a predictable version of Greatest Love of All, which wasn't bad, and the other taking on one moment in time, which is when I realized that sitting near the front of a talent show means unless you have a poker face that can flash an interested and supportive expression 100% of the time, people can probably tell that you aren't into their act. At some point early in the show, David and I began to display scores for each act after they sang or danced or did whatever they were doing by using our fingers. And I almost fell off my chair when he gave the one moment in time girl a four while I displayed two fingers, which I then changed to one to let him know what I thought of his four. Whoever was in charge of setting up the acts for the talent show order thought it was a good idea to have two separate sets of students singing duets appear prior to Sweeter Sensation. <laughs> the first pair of students that I didn't recognize sang Close Your Eyes Forever by Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne, and I again almost fell off the chair, but they actually weren't that bad. Then, after that, two other students got up that none of us recognized, who proceeded to butcher After All by Sharon Peter Cetera, which had me exchanging wide-eyed glances with Denise during the performance. After the students on stage were done and bowed to lackluster applause, David looked over at me holding out three of his fingers, to which I replied by forming a fist with my hand. Does that mean a zero, he asked, as I rolled my eyes. Finally, the act that we came to see in support, Sweeter Sensation, took the stage, and we enthusiastically screamed and cheered and clapped along with the rest of the audience in the room as the girls did their best moves, inspired by Madonna, Paula Abdul, and Janet Jackson. They did wind up winning, which included a trophy, a picture in our school's yearbook, and a $100 gift certificate to the Southland Mall. All that for that, David said. As After All by Cher and Peter Cetera ends, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the next track. Track 4 was released in June of 1989 and peaked at number 2 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Bobby Brown, and the song is On Our Own.
In the late 80s, R&B music was experiencing a reinvention of sorts involving sleek production values and catchy dance-laden lyrics, replacing its roots in funk, blues, and jazz. Genres like hip-hop, New Jack Swing, and rap also began vying for audiences' attention on the airwaves and became featured more prominently in films and on their soundtracks. In the same way that Motown music became associated with the youth of the 60s, these genres provided songs, sounds, and singers that appealed to the youth of the late 80s and early 90s. The genre of New Jack Swing quickly rose to prominence as it blended dance-pop-friendly sounds with elements of funk, disco, jazz, and hip-hop, also creating infectiously danceable beats and catchy sing-along lyrics. Artists like Heavy D and the Boys, I'll Be Sure, Janet Jackson, Keith Sweat, and Bobby Brown all saw several of their songs lean into the genre to become successful during this time. Bobby Brown, at the height of his success due to the massive success of his album Don't Be Cruel, along with its single of the same name and songs My Prerogative, Roni, and Every Little Step, was approached by the producers of the film Ghostbusters 2 to be included on the soundtrack. While the original film soundtrack in 1984 reflected popular artists like Thompson Twins, Laura Branigan, and Air Supply, as well as Ray Parker Jr. singing the signature title tune, Ghostbusters, the film's producers wanted to capitalize on a more contemporary format in 1989, utilizing R&B, hip-hop, and New Jack swing sounds. In addition to two songs by Bobby Brown, the soundtrack featured music by New Edition, Dougie Fresh, JT Taylor of Cool and the Gang, and Run DMC performing a reworked and remixed rendition of Ghostbusters that had me moving 30 years ago, and it still gets me going today. The film's lead single, On Our Own, was written by legendary songwriters and music producers L.A. Reid and Babyface, and features lyrics about pursuing success and fulfillment in life on one's own terms, and by making those things happen for themselves rather than hoping someone else will make them happen for you. The lyrics include, Can't you see that we all need to be a go-getter? Gotta make your own decisions. Gotta go for what you know. There comes a time in our lives you want to be bigger. Gotta keep, keep on pushing. You gotta learn to take control. The music production is stellar, and it features a solid bass groove, pumping drums, and guitars designed to enhance the catchy hook and melody. It's funny, I'd hear the same solid bass groove, pumping drums, and guitars also designed to enhance the catchy hook and melody in the instrumentation and production of the song Giving You the Benefit by Pebbles just a few years later. I guess it's no surprise, though, since that song was also written and produced by Ellie Reed and Babyface. I had the cassette single, or rather the single, of the song On Our Own, which featured Bobby Brown rapping on side A, and on the other side, there was no rap. Possibly because I was influenced by my love of the song Every Little Step, which also featured Bobby Brown rapping, I remember learning the rap from On Our Own before deciding that I would just stick with side B's version without it. <laughs> the music video was made for $1.98, and it featured some celebrity cameos, although no one from the film along with shots of New York City, scenes from the movie, and Bobby Brown during his Gumby haircut and bike shorts phase, wrapping the film's plot, not once, but twice. Too hot to handle, too cold to hold, the called Ghostbusters and they're in control, had them throwing a party for a bunch of children, while all the while the slime was under the building. So they packed up the crew, got a grip, came quick, grabbed the proton packs on their backs and they split, to battle out Vigo, the master of evil, try to battle my boys, that's not legal. 
<laughs> I know, I get it. While Ghostbusters 2 wasn't nearly as culturally or cinematically relevant as the original, it was entertaining, if somewhat less magical and memorable than the first. Much like how Bobby Brown's song On Our Own was an enjoyable summer jam, though it's nowhere near Ray Parker Jr.'s Ghostbusters! As On Our Own by Bobby Brown fades out, I'll pause the cassette and prepare the final track for Side B. Our final track was released in June of 1989 and peaked at number one for one week on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 Singles Chart. The artist is Prince, and the song is Bat Dance. Over the last decade or so, there's been a steady dominance of films based on comic book superheroes saturating screens big and small. The availability and accessibility of these films is just astounding, especially with how quickly and routinely they're churned out. But this wasn't always the case. During the 80s, the superhero film genre failed to connect with audiences and critics despite movie studios putting out films centered around characters like Supergirl, Flash Gordon, Swamp Thing, and Howard the Duck. There were also several sequels made to the Superman franchise starring Christopher Reeve, that performed poorly with the public and just couldn't seem to get critical acclaim or commercial availability. Instead of the multiplexes being dominated by DC and MCU, 80s theaters were populated by larger-than-life characters like Robocop, Rambo, Indiana Jones, John McClane, James Bond, Ellen Ripley, Mr. Miyagi, and Rocky Balboa, who were seen as relatable and realistic cinematic heroes to many. The summer of 1989 was possibly the most popular and profitable season for blockbuster movies during the 1980s. It was such a spectacular time to go to the theater as anticipation and excitement grew for films like Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Do the Right Thing, Dead Poets Society, When Harry Met Sally, as well as sequels to A Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. However, nothing could match or even come close to the hype surrounding the year's biggest release, Batman. This was also the most anticipated film of the summer. The movie's aggressive marketing campaign had begun almost a year prior to the film's release date, with images of the iconic black and yellow bat symbol plastered everywhere all throughout the city, on billboards and sides of buses, anywhere and everywhere imaginable you saw it. Not to mention the endless promotional merchandise and tie-ins like fast food restaurant toys, collector cups and glasses, action figures, bed sheets, play sets, clothing, watches, ball caps, video games, breakfast cereals, stickers, anything imaginable, and everything else that could have been licensed and marketed to customers. The anticipation and support for the film even saw many men shave the bat symbol design into their head which was a choice. Prior to Tim Burton's film, Batman's legacy on screen was mostly defined by the camp and corniness of the 1960s series with Adam West in the title role. Many viewers who hadn't read the comics but were familiar with the TV show became used to seeing Batman and Robin climb up the sides of buildings along with sound effects like pow, zap, and wham appearing in comic book style dialogue bubbles when they fought their foes. 
Tim Burton sought to tell a darker and different take on Batman since his story had evolved greatly in the two decades since he took his last POW dialogue bubble from the Penguin. I saw Batman with my father at the festival theater during opening weekend, and like many other people, we were matching black t-shirts with great big bat symbols on the front. While we waited in a line with a bunch of other people that also had tickets inside the lobby, my father and I talked about music, most specifically Prince's new song, Bat Dance. Despite it being over six minutes long, the song was released as the lead single from the soundtrack to support the film. I remember that it was played everywhere throughout the summer of 1989, and it was played in its entirety on the radio. Bat Dance sounded like nothing else around at the time, and it could have only been created in and crafted from the genius mind of Prince. The song is somewhat challenging to describe, as it's a chaotic yet controlled dance song in parts, while also being a rhythmic, funk-filled slow jam in others. Only an artist of Prince's caliber could have successfully fused together elements of electronica, house, punk, rock, opera, R&B, and pop all into one song, along with samples of dialogue from the film. He also managed to include an homage to the 60s TV theme song with the call and response of, Get the funk up, Batman! <laughs> On the song, Prince incorporates several keyboards, guitars, and an assortment of electronic and computerized instruments into the song's mesmerizing music production. It just enhances the frenzied energy of the melody and the lyrics. My favorite part of the song, though, is in the middle, where his incredibly funky rock guitar solo seamlessly dissolves into a hypnotic dance beat, just as the Joker says, Stop the presses. Who is that? This is the part in the music video where multiple Vicky Vales enter assembly line-like and proceed to then bump and grind with Prince, who appears half as Batman and half as Joker, but all with style. There really wasn't anything that he couldn't do. And we did it. We've completed our 25th podcast playlist mixtape. I'll press the stop button on the cassette player and eject our tape. To recap, we open side B with Let the River Run by Carly Simon, followed by Wind Beneath My Wings by Bette Midler. Next was After All by Cher and Peter Cetera. Then On Our Own by Bobby Brown. And we ended side B with Bat Dance by Prince. I've labeled our tape movie soundtracks 88 to 89 on both sides and put it into our cassette tape holder for completion. I hope you enjoyed learning about the artists and songs featured on movie soundtracks from 1988 to 1989, as well as the other artists, songs, and movie soundtracks covered in the other playlists from 1980 through 1987. When love is truly right, it lives from year to year. It changes as it goes, Oh, and on the way it grows, but it never disappears. As always, I hope that you've enjoyed this experience as much as I have bringing it to you, and that you'll continue to listen and support Jimmy's Extraordinary 80s Playlist as we celebrate the music and the memories of the greatest decade to live in and live through, the 1980s. <laughs>